Hi, I'm Lewis, and welcome to Searching for It. Last episode, I said that next time we'd be looking at the question, why is there something rather than nothing? But recently, I've had the fantastic opportunity to have Professor Sam Rickless come onto the show. Sam is a professor of philosophy at the University of California, San Diego, where he's recently created a fascinating new course on the meaning of life. I had a great chat with Sam, we talked about his new course, a bit about Camus, but we also discussed a couple of more contemporary philosophers that we hadn't spoken about quite yet in Searching for It. These philosophers, Thomas Nagel and Susan Wolfe, both have some really interesting things to say about the meaning of life, so before going ahead with an episode on why there's something rather than nothing, and before releasing the episode with Sam, I thought that it would be a perfect opportunity to have a couple of one-off episodes on Nagel and on Wolf. If you're new to Searching for It, and if you're tuning in for the first time, and if you're not too familiar with Albert Camus, I'd recommend giving the first episode of this podcast a listen first, because at least in part, I think that you can look at Nagel's thoughts on the absurd as a response to Camus, or at the very least as an interesting alternative to the perspective that Camus takes on the absurd. Now, Nagel himself was probably one of the most influential philosophers of the 20th century, and he was one of those really impressive philosophers who seemed to have something to say about so many different areas of philosophy. He made important contributions to ethics, to political philosophy, and especially to the philosophy of mind as well. But the focus of this episode is going to be an essay that Nagel wrote back in 1971, simply called The Absurd. Now, if you are familiar with Camus, you'll know that Camus saw the absurd as what he called the one truly serious philosophical problem. In fact, even more than that, Camus thought that the absurd was so problematic that he wrote an essay investigating whether we should commit suicide in the face of it. Camus wrote this essay, The Myth of Sisyphus, back in 1942, so it's less than 30 years later that Nagel's asking us to rethink what we mean by the absurd and whether Camus offering us the best solution. But there's a few differences between how Camus and Nagel each approach the problem of the absurd. First and foremost, you can see a difference in how Camus and Nagel begin their essays. In The Myth of Sisyphus, Camus sets out by explicitly assuming the absurdity of human existence. The notion of the absurd isn't something that Camus defends, it's just his starting point. And from that assumption, Camus' project is to ask how we should deal with the absurd. But Nagel's goal is to go one step deeper here. Rather than simply assuming the absurd, Nagel begins his essay by asking what we even mean by describing things as absurd. He goes on to explain why human existence is absurd, and then only once we've got a firm grip on the notion of absurdity does Nagel ask, well, what should we do about it? So let's begin then, like Nagel, by thinking about what we mean by the absurd in the first place, What does it mean to call something absurd? Well, I think one place to start is to be clear on what Nagel doesn't mean by the absurd. Because you'll sometimes see in philosophy, and I'm sure this is the case in other disciplines as well, that the philosophical definition of a word is often something quite different from the general day-to-day conversational definition of a word. I think one good example of this is the word valid. So in general conversation, if you say that something is valid... You might mean to say that it's reasonable, that it checks out, that it works. But in philosophy, validity means something much more specific. What it means for a philosophical argument to be valid 
is that its premises guarantee the truth of their conclusion, or in other words, the conclusion necessarily follows from the premises. So take the following argument. Iceland has the biggest population in the world. The country with the biggest population in the world will always win the Olympics. Therefore, Iceland will win the Olympics. Now, this argument is obviously false. Iceland doesn't have the biggest population in the world, and it's not the case that the country with the biggest population always wins the Olympics. And in this sense, the argument isn't valid in the general, day-to-day -day meaning of the word. It's a completely unreasonable argument to make. But, even if it's clearly false, and even if it's not valid in the general, day-to-day -day meaning of the word, the argument is actually valid in the philosophical sense of the word. Because, you see, if it were really true that Iceland has the biggest population in the world, and if the country with the biggest population always wins the Olympics, then yes, Iceland would surely win the Olympics. The truth of the premises guarantee the truth of the conclusion. So, you see, there's a disconnect between the conversational sense of validity and the philosophical sense of validity. The Iceland argument is valid in the philosophical sense, but it's definitely not valid in our everyday sense of the word. All of this is to say, we'd be best off forgetting our common sense use of the word absurd. I feel like the everyday meaning of absurd is something like unreasonableness or randomness or for something to be a bit bonkers. In this everyday sense of the word, you might describe maybe the flat earth conspiracy theory as absurd because it's so totally unreasonable. But it's not absurd in the philosophical sense of the word. There's something much more specific when we talk about absurdity in the philosophical sense. What Nagel means by the absurd is this. The absurd arises when there is a disconnect between someone's aims and reality. So, in other words, you see the absurd when you try to do something, but it's completely out of sync with the way that things really are. Nagel gives a few examples, and one that I think is really great is the example of a man deeply in love, calling to profess his love over the phone, only to realise that he's speaking to a voicemail service. Or another might be a lady going on a date in her most elegant dress, only to realise at the end of the night that she's been wearing it inside out. In both of these cases, there's a divorce between the way that you'd aspired that things would turn out, and the way that things really are. But Nagel's not writing this essay as a supplement to the Oxford Dictionary. He's not just trying to come up with a definition. That wouldn't be very exciting. The idea at the heart of Nagel's essay is much more grand and much more pertinent to our lives. Nagel thinks that human existence itself is absurd. See, just like with the person who professes their love to a voicemail service, Nagel thinks that people's lives, when taken as a whole, face a similar kind of disconnect between aspiration and reality. According to Nagel, we aspire to live meaningful lives. We throw ourselves into our lives. We're all so deeply immersed in our projects, our desires, our loves. We live our lives with vigour as if they really matter. But the disconnect lies between this seriousness with which we approach our lives and the ultimate arbitrariness of our lives and everything that we do. In other words, there's a disconnect between how seriously we take ourselves and the fact that nothing we do actually matters. And in that disconnect lies the absurdity of human existence. So there's two things going on here. There's the sense in which we take our lives seriously, and there's the sense in which we perceive our lives as being in some sense arbitrary. So let's take these two things one at a time. 
first of all, then, we've got the seriousness with which we take our lives. What Nagel's trying to express here is that it's not as if we live our lives as if nothing really matters, it's actually quite the opposite. As human beings, we have the capacity to choose between different courses of action, to prioritise one thing above another, and then we also have the capacity to reflect upon our choices. And many of those choices we'll take very seriously indeed. When we propose, we don't do it on a whim. When we're deciding what kind of job to pursue, we'll make our decision very carefully. And when we have a big exam, we'll study like it really matters. And it's not just the big decisions either. Even the smaller things in life, fretting about an outfit before you go out for the evening, your sex life, your relationship with your friends, or your performance in a job, we all spend a lot of time and energy thinking about these things. I think Nagel puts it best when he says, leading a human life is a full-time occupation to which everyone devotes decades of intense concern. We're deeply and intricately tied up within our own lives, and in virtue of choosing different courses of action, of valuing things, of caring about specific people, we're constantly reaffirming just how seriously we take our lives. And then we've got the second factor that ensures the absurdity of human existence. We've got the perception of the arbitrariness of our lives. I personally find Nagel's description of what he calls the arbitrariness of our lives quite poignant. He often uses the term backward step to describe the process through which we can perceive our lives in this way. For Nagel, when you take a step back from your own life, when you detach yourself just for a moment from all of your desires, your loves and your passions with which you're so deeply entwined, you see your life from this outside perspective, from what Nagel calls the point of view of eternity. And from here, your life can come across as a bit strange, a bit alien, and, well, a bit arbitrary. Nagel likens this to when you look at an ant scurrying about frantically, going about its business. You're looking at the ant from above, without any of the ant's presuppositions, and there's a certain sense of bewilderment that you might feel towards the intensity with which the ant darts across here and there, despite the ultimate futility of its entire existence. If this doesn't resonate, if you feel like you've never adopted this kind of perspective towards your own life, taken as a whole, I'm willing to bet that a lot of people listening to this episode will relate to this kind of feeling in at least some aspect of their lives. When I read Nagel's account of the absurd, there's something that particularly sprung to mind myself. So, I've always been a supporter of Southampton Football Club. I say always, but ever since I've had any interest in football, since the age of about four. Now, I subscribe to a Southampton Football Club subreddit, and I once came across a post on there. It was written by a guy who had just recently got into football. He said he wanted to choose a team to support, but he thought he'd learn a little more about football first. So he watched an entire season of the Premier League, and he settled upon Southampton. He said he felt a particular connection with the club. Reading this post, it felt a little alien. Growing up in England, you'll always live not too far from a decent football club, so it's pretty normal to begin supporting your local team at a young age, and, and definitely never change. Loyalty is a big thing amongst football fans. So the concept of getting into football at an older age, and choosing who you support, well, it sounded a little strange. You don't choose who to support, you're born into it. And it was when I imagined the possibility of choosing who I support, that I took that backward step that Nagel describes, I stepped back from the role of a Southampton fan within which I was so deeply immersed, and I apprehended the absurdity of my support for Southampton. 
just as Nagel says, I saw a disconnect between the seriousness with which I take my support for Southampton and the arbitrariness of my decision that I could have supported whoever I like. And the absurdity arose within this disconnect between the seriousness with which I support Southampton and with the arbitrariness of my support, and my knowledge that I'd continue supporting Southampton with just as much seriousness anyway. But the theme of Nagel's paper, and of this episode, is what happens when we apply this absurdity to our lives taken as a whole. Nagel wants to know what happens when we step beyond these isolated instances, beyond our choice of football club, our choice of romantic partner and our choice of career. Nagel wants to know what happens when we take a big step backwards and take a look at our entire lives from the perspective of eternity. And it's when we take this final step back that we see not just the arbitrariness of our choice of football club or our choice of career, but we see the arbitrariness of our entire scheme of justification. When we detach ourselves from our lives, just temporarily, and we ask why we get ourselves caught up in these little trivialities, when we ask ourselves where our lives are going and what it's all for, there's no ultimate justification that you can provide. For Nagel, we eventually reach a point at which our justifications become circular, that we live our lives in the way that we do, just because we do, and that's all there is to it. However we justify our schemes of justifications and our systems of value, there's always a sense in which you can ask, but why? Whether you do what you do because you want to be happy, because you want to support your family or make your parents proud, whether you appeal to some higher force such as the state or science or God, you can always take that step backwards and ask, why? And when we take that backward step, there's no final justification to be provided. The meaning of our life doesn't become clear, it becomes shrouded in mystique and ambiguity. Once you take that backward step, it's difficult to take your life as anything other than contingent, as pointless and futile. And when you couple that with the inevitable seriousness with which you'll continue to take your life, there lies the absurd. To draw another comparison with Camus, you might remember that Camus fiercely opposes any attempts to deny that human existence is absurd. If you find yourself hoping for meaning, or if you find yourself striving to direct your life in pursuit of some higher purpose, you're achieving nothing but philosophical suicide. Camus' response is to remain fully lucid of the absurd, never to deny it, never to wish for more, but to carry on and to meet the absurd with scorn and rebellion. Although Nagel doesn't prescribe scorn as our medicine to the absurd, Nagel does agree with Camus that the absurd isn't something that we can just sidestep. Our lives are absurd whether we like it or not. For Nagel, both prongs of the absurd are inescapable. It wouldn't be feasible to simply stop taking our lives seriously and to act as if nothing we do really matters. To stop taking our lives seriously would come at the cost of relinquishing any kind of meaningfulness in our lives, a life where we flit from thing to thing, caring about nothing, valuing nothing, would be a hollow, vacuous life, devoid of meaning and devoid of colour. Nor can we simply decide not to take the backward step and just ignore the arbitrariness of our lives, because to do this would be to acknowledge that there is a perspective from which our lives can appear arbitrary, and once we acknowledge the existence of this perspective, we've already lost. For Nagel, there's no getting around the fact that our lives are absurd. So instead, 
We're going to have to find a way of dealing with the absurd. We'll have to find a way of coming to terms with the fact that nothing we do will ever find an eternal justification, that each decision we make is arbitrary and meaningless from the perspective of eternity. But like Camus, Nagel does offer us a pathway through the darkness. And to bring this out, to explain how we should continue to live in the face of absurdity, Nagel makes a comparison between the absurd and something called epistemological scepticism. So to make a little segue here, epistemology is the study of knowledge in philosophy. What it means to know things, whether knowledge and certainty are the same thing, what kinds of barriers there are to knowledge, it's the study of knowledge. Well, there's an idea within epistemology called scepticism, and this is all about questioning all those things that we claim to know. And sceptics would be inclined to argue that we know a lot less than we think we do. So the classic thought experiment when it comes to scepticism is what philosophers call the brain-in-a-vat hypothesis. The idea here is this. Imagine that there's some crazy old scientist who takes a human brain, places it in some life-sustaining liquid, and connects each of its neurons up to a supercomputer. Through the computer, the scientist can induce all kinds of experiences in the brain. It can make the brain feel as if it's a human being walking down the street. It can induce the brain to feel the cold splash as it jumps into an icy cold lake. It can make the brain smell freshly cut lawn on a warm summer's day. And perhaps, rather than just inducing a series of individual experiences in the brain... Maybe the scientist could program the computer to fully replicate the exact same impulses that the brain would send and receive if it were in a real human body. In other words, the scientist could induce the brain to experience a human life in just the same way as if it were really housed within a fully functioning human body in the real world. But if the brain is having experiences that are indistinguishable from the real world, on what basis could it possibly know that it's a brain in a vat? Well, of course it wouldn't, just in the same way that people who live in a simulation wouldn't necessarily know that they're in a simulation, and in just the same way that the characters in the Matrix didn't know that they were in a simulated reality, the brain in the vat wouldn't know that it's just a brain in a vat. But the kicker is this. If the brain in the vat is unable to tell that it's a brain in a vat, on what basis could we claim to know that we live in the real world and that we're not just brains in vats? It's a similar concept to that which we'd looked at in the simulation episode. Can we really know that we're not actually in a simulation or in the matrix or just a brain sitting in some future scientist's vat? It's not as if we can simply say, I can see that I'm in the real world, because the brain in the vat could say the same thing, they'd be seeing the same things as us. And if we can't know that we're real, walking, talking human beings, how can you know that your family really exists, that your house isn't just an illusion, or even that your body really exists? How can you know that you weren't just programmed to experience these things by some supercomputer? This is a deep puzzle for philosophers. It makes it difficult to say that there's very much at all that you can know for sure. But, even for those philosophers who make these kinds of sceptical arguments, it's not as if they actually go on to radically alter their lives or, or cease to believe that the external world really exists and sit alone in their bedroom in nervous sweats, anxious about whether anything is truly as it appears. No, even after making these kinds of sceptical arguments, they'll continue on as they did before, 
They'll continue to engage with the world, they'll continue to love their partner, to eat the delicious food on their plate. They'll carry on as if everything is truly as it appears. But, nevertheless, something has changed. Like returning to a lover who's cheated on you, their experiences are now tinged with a slightly different flavour. Their exposure to sceptical arguments doesn't lead these philosophers to abandon their everyday beliefs. Instead, they return to their everyday beliefs with what Nagel calls a certain irony and resignation. They continue to believe that the external world is as it appears, but like the way that they would now see their unfaithful partner, the way that they look at their everyday beliefs has been fundamentally altered. And this is just how Nagel recommends that we face the absurdity of our lives. After taking that backward step, we don't abandon our personal projects, we don't renounce our passions and desires and live as if nothing really matters. No, we live just as passionately and with just as much vigour as we did before. We return to our lives with all the same seriousness, but that seriousness is laced with irony. Knowing that there's no rational grounding for all that we take so seriously, that there's no external justification for all that we immerse ourselves in so completely. All we can do is laugh, look at the situation with a sense of humour, and chuckle that we'll inevitably throw ourselves back into our arbitrary lives with all the same intensity as before. This won't overcome the absurd. Our lives will still be absurd, but it allows us to continue on with all that we value, to live lives that feel meaningful, and... At least for Nagel, this isn't such a bad hand to be dealt. See, Nagel thinks of some philosophers, Camus being a prime example, who look upon the absurdity of human existence as a tragedy and something to be lamented. There's a tendency to look at the absurd and everything that comes along with it, the futility, the arbitrariness and the pointlessness, and to wish it could be otherwise. And I feel I can relate here. I know from personal experience that although I don't hold any religious beliefs, I'm very much envious of the sense of purpose and I think justification that religious belief can bring. But to anyone who shares this sentiment, to anyone who wishes that their lives weren't absurd, Nagel asks, well, what would you actually want to change about the absurd? Remember, our lives are absurd in virtue of two things, in virtue of taking our lives seriously and in virtue of perceiving everything that we do as arbitrary. But as we've already seen, we don't want to stop taking our lives seriously. That would suck all the meaning and colour out of our lives. And equally, if we prefer that we were unable to take that backward step and question the justifications that we give for everything that we do, we'd have to sacrifice our capacities of self-consciousness and reflection that allow us to take that backward step in the first place. And it's precisely those capacities that make us human. The point here is that the absurd is no cause for distress, not at all. In fact, the ability to perceive the absurd is one of the most human things about us, insofar as we're only able to see the absurd in virtue of having this ability to transcend our own lives and see ourselves from the outside. It's exactly that kind of ability that distinguishes human beings from animals. So if the cost of avoiding the absurd is to sacrifice our abilities to reflect and our capacities of self-consciousness, then maybe living in an absurd life isn't such a steep price to pay. For those of you who disagree with Nagel here, for anyone who still feels a residual sense of dissatisfaction with the absurdity of their lives, Nagel says, hold up, don't get carried away here. Don't end up following the likes of Camus and look upon the absurd as a horror. According to Nagel, 
Camus' attitude towards the absurd is, in his words, romantic and slightly self-pitying. See, if we allow ourselves to act all dramatic towards the absurd, according to Nagel, we're completely missing the point and we're failing to comprehend the cosmic unimportance of the situation. If our lives really are absurd, and we really are confronted only with meaninglessness, then why should that matter? To put it bluntly, if there's no reason to think that anything matters, then why should it matter that nothing matters? For Nagel, if nothing really matters, at worst there's an irony in the sense that we'll continue to immerse ourselves so completely in our meaningless existence, but there's no sense of horror. All there is to do is to approach this ironic absurdity with a chuckle, and move on with our lives. That's it on Nagel in this month's episode of Searching for It. As I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, I'll be back with an episode on the great philosopher Susan Wolfe and her thoughts on the meaning of life and meaningful lives, before we welcome Professor Sam Rickless to the show for a guest appearance. In the meantime, if you'd like to help support the show, you can find the show's Patreon page on www.patreon.com forward slash searching for it, where you can pledge a small contribution towards the show starting at just $1 an episode, and it's always a great help if you're able to leave a rating and a review on your podcasting app of choice. Otherwise, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. Thank you.